today it is my great pleasure to introduce Barbara Zimbalist, who I met for the first time in September and has become such a wonderful part of our group um, and my neighbor in the carriage house. Um, her work, as you know, is on the, uh, the writing of medieval women mystics. She did her degree at the University of California, Davis, where she did her doctorate, and she comes to us from the University of Texas at El Paso, where she is assistant professor of medieval literature and culture in the Department of English. Um, in the brief period since receiving her doctorate, she has established herself as one of the important young voices in this field with nine publications. Um, she's already a utility player on the writing of medieval women mystics in a number of languages. Um, so we're very happy today to hear, have the chance to hear about her book, In Progress, Translating, Translating Christ in the Middle Ages, Visionary Translation, Divine Rhetoric, and Verbal Devotion in England, France, and the Low Countries. Barbara. Thank you so much, Anne. And I'll just briefly test out whether everyone can hear me all right, and we're good to go. All right. So thank you all for joining me today. Uh, thank you to Anne and for Tracy, and to Tracy for organizing this wonderful opportunity to share our work with the community. Thank you to my fellow fellows for your support and shared inquiry. And a special thank you to all my students this semester, I see many of you here, um, who are joining me in my ongoing questions about women's mysticism and authorship. It's been a pleasure to be talking with you. And finally, I want to thank you all for being willing to come listen to me talk about medieval literature rather than celebrate the Red Sox's triumphant return to the city. So that really does show commitment. I appreciate it. <clears throat> so I want to start today with a little experiment. So here we have two examples uh, from devotional guides that invite readers to cultivate a personal, often, often highly imaginative relationship with the divine. One of them is medieval and one of them is modern. It's in fact only four years old. I'm going to read them both out loud and then ask everyone to decide which is which, and perhaps more importantly, why we think which is which. So, number one, spend the time walking and talking with God. If the location permits, you may even want to talk out loud. Focus your thoughts on your love of your heavenly Father. Praise him for his love and mercy. Thank him for expressions of his love to you. Be specific. Express to God your love for him. Take time to worship him and adore him. Then just spend time with him. Talk to him about your concerns and listen to what he may want to say to you. Okay, number one. Number two. Then say, O oh Lord, enlighten my eyes that I don't sleep in death and so that my enemies can't say I have had power against you. Then sit down with a sweeter and a softer heart as far as you're able and say, Now speak, Lord, after your sweet voice. And then hear what he shall speak in you. And wherever he leads you or brings you, follow him simply and plainly, hoping and trusting in him that he shall not lead you into evil. Okay, so let's take a poll. <laughs> is this a trick question? No, no, I promise. One is contemporary and one is medieval. So. Anybody want to take a guess? Which one? Contemporary. Contemporary on the left, medieval on the right. Everybody? Yeah. yeah. Any thoughts as to why? <laughs> Sounds more contemporary. Yeah. The older. Yeah. Yeah, Anais. Okay. 
Oh, yes, thinking about the love, right? Like talking to the Lord. Okay. So we see some of that bridal mysticism. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Firmly convinced of one or the other. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll unveil. Yeah. All right. So this is the modern one. Yeah. Here's its source. Um, the first passage comes from the 2004 publication, Experiencing God, by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. This is a popular evangelical guidebook for both men and women that describes devotional practices meant to encourage dialogue with the divine. The second passage comes from the Dutch prioress Alait Bakke's text of 1446, De Vere Kruis or The Four Ways of the Cross. Bakke's work, as we will hear more about later, was based on her own visions and written specifically for the nuns in her convent community. Despite more than 500 years of distance between them, however, both of these texts make similar appeals on their readers. They direct the reader's thoughts and or speech, they imagine space for divine response, and they encourage the reader to understand themselves as participating, if not on some level directing, their own spiritual progress. While this may seem conventional, perhaps even expected in 2004, the 15th century version of such piety, especially once we know it was intended specifically for women, may surprise us. We are not used to imagining medieval women in control of their religious lives. And if I, make, if I may make one last observation, it's worth noting that it is the medieval text intended for women that makes the more daring theological claim. Bakke promises her readers that if they pray as she recommends, the Lord shall speak in them, whereas Blackabe and King simply suggest that he might want to talk. How and why, we may wonder, could Bakke get away with such a daring recommendation? I argue that her text simply extends to her readers particular devotional practices developed by female visionaries throughout the Middle Ages, Visionary conversations with Christ translated into vernacular texts as guides for female readers. These practices created new positions of spiritual and textual authority for women and altered the landscape of medieval religious culture. And this brings me to my central question. When a medieval woman claims to have talked to Christ, what exactly is she claiming? She claims spiritual authority, mystical or visionary experience, and once that conversation becomes text, literary and narrative agency. She becomes a devotional model, and her text becomes spiritual guidance. My work asks how and why medieval women were able to make these claims, and the legacy of those claims for religious and literary traditions. My attention to the visionary woman and her conversations with Christ became first my doctoral dissertation, and now finally my first book, which I'm finishing during this year at the WSRP. I want to take a moment to talk about my title, because the title responds to a critical difficulty fundamental to my, my project, and that problem is, how do we analyze or even talk about a phenomena for which we do not yet have a critical vocabulary? As I found once I began researching this topic, medieval women across Europe were talking with Christ all the time, yet very little scholarship attends to those conversations as conversations, to the record of those conversations as literary texts, or to medieval visionaries, specifically female visionaries, as authors. In medieval studies generally, attention to visionary women has often proceeded along very specific avenues, much of it inspired by the groundbreaking work, which many of you probably know, of Carolyn Walker Bynum. Her book, Holy Feast and Holy Fast, argued for the fundamentally embodied nature of medieval women's religious experience and drew attention to gendered practices of affective piety, somatic experience, and corporeal asceticism. While Bynum's work inspired much valuable scholarship, far less attention has been paid to other, less embodied modes of women's piety and devotion, the intellectual, rhetorical, or verbal, for example. My work responds to this critical situation. 
Um, then, we have a great deal of recovery work, by which I mean work that introduced women's visionary texts into the scholarly conversation by editing, re-editing, or translating understudied or unknown texts for new audiences. Examples of this type of work include in English, Nicholas Watson and Jacqueline Jenkins' comprehensive edition of Julian of Norwich, Liz Herbert McAvoy's recent edition of A Revelation of Purgatory, in Dutch, Verle Frater's and Frank Willert's uh, ongoing Hadwick series, and in translation, series such as those of the Paulus Press or Breppel's Medieval Women Text and Context. Finally, new critical work by Barbara Newman and Jessica Barr in particular has shown how visionary texts combine sophisticated literary artistry with theological designs. Yet none of these critical approaches attends to the particular spiritual and authorial strategies developed by women who claim repeatedly and specifically to record Christ's speech. My solution to this critical situation, as my title suggests, has been to describe and analyze each phase of a process that I call translating Christ. The title itself emphasizes the specifically literary nature of the religious encounter it examines. The translation of Christ's speech received during a vision into text. For female visionaries, such transformation was deeply gendered. Though prohibited from public speech, discouraged from Latinate learning, and barred from ecclesiastical authority, Medieval women participated in the religious cultures of their day by textually representing, imitating, and even reimagining the central figure of authority, Jesus Christ. By translating Christ, medieval women reformulated authorial subjectivity as well as the rhetorical identity and devotional function of Christ's speech itself. So before I go on, I want to take a moment to define my terms. The phrase visionary translation specifically suggests the translator's participation, even Christ's translators, in creating meaning. As Walter Benjamin reminds us, all linguistic translation engenders change. But translating Christ does more than translate between languages. It activated multiple transformations of divine speech into human language, oral encounter into textual artifact, visual communication into oral narrative, and individual visionary experience into communal reading practice. While medieval visionaries may claim to be simply transmitting a visionary message, that transmission was never an entirely passive act. Whether through the oral narrative of visionary experiences or through her own written text, the visionary woman gives shape to Christ's speech, and in doing so, she shapes the word of God. Divine rhetoric refers to the way in which the visionary presents Christ's speech to her readers. It suggests that by creating a narrative for Jesus, the visionary performs two devotional acts. First, she imitates him thus participating in the broader medieval enterprise of the Imitatio Christi, which we've talked a lot about this semester. <laughs> yeah. uh, and number two, she positions herself as an exemplary narrative figure for other readers, often female readers, to imitate. Finally, verbal devotion refers to the types of spoken responses that these texts invite. Often, the female visionary models that response by portraying herself in conversation with Jesus. At other moments, these texts direct their readers, as we already saw in the case of Alet Bake, to imitate or even join that conversation. Such speech ultimately unites readers into a shared community of devotional practice in the moment of reading and beyond the text. So a quick moment to give you an overview of the whole project, since I'm not going to talk about everybody in the book today. Um, so the project surveys a particular instance of this broad tradition, Christ's translators in England, France, and the Low Countries. I chose this particular corpus because we can chart specific similarities in the texts between, from these regions between approximately 12 and 1500. Furthermore, visionary texts from each of these regions were eventually translated between languages and circulated across their respective borders. 
Moreover, while we can find visionary translation from almost every other European vernacular, the texts from England and the Low Countries in particular share a tendency to represent the visionary woman in prolonged conversation with Christ. And those of you who just finished reading the book of Marjorie Kemp with me can attest that this is true. Yes. Due to the temporal and geographical range, I look at texts in four languages, Latin, French, Dutch, and English. The first two chapters look at the emergence of this literary trope in hagiography, first in Latin and then in the vernacular, authored by a visionary woman in conversation with a cleric, confessor, or mentor, first male, then female. I call these partnerships collaborative authors and argue that the visionary woman provides oral narrative that is essential to the text. The rest of the chapters survey a variety of vernacular texts authored solely by individual visionaries, the visionary translators of my title. My methodology thus combines a comparative literary approach with gender studies, but I also take account of material history. By tracing a literary trope and tradition across multiple languages, cultures, and material artifacts, I argue that we can see a broader transformation of women's literary practice. So for the rest of the talk, I'm gonna to turn to three examples that illustrate this tradition. For each, I'll give some historical and cultural context before we look at textual examples. We'll look first at the Latin Vita, or Life of Lutgard of Iwer, from the 1260s, then at two later medieval texts, the Middle English Book of Marjorie Kemp, and two of Alet Bakke's Middle Dutch Devotions for Women. Together, they show us the emergence of a tradition across centuries, genres, and languages as a coherent literary and devotional tradition. So my first example comes from the literary world of the saints. The Vita of Lutgard of Iwer comes from the high medieval low countries, specifically the Diocese of Liège. And there we have Belgium and Liège. In the 12th and 13th centuries, Liège produced a new hagiography fundamentally tied to its linguistic, discursive, and religious identity. Liège was a principality ruled by prince bishops with an unusually large and varied population of religious, devout laypersons and clerics. The diocese conformed roughly to the geographic region of the Meuse River Valley and incorporated many small towns into a larger regional identity. The common spoken language was Walloon, but immediate proximity to German, Flemish, and Dutch-speaking regions, combined with a large Latinate religious population, created a distinctly multilingual environment. This linguistic multiplicity was especially marked in the capital city of Liège, which was deeply impacted by the rapid growth of the Beguin movement, the institution of numerous Cistercian houses, and the advent of the mendicant orders, all of which constituted an atmosphere of diverse religiosity united through a focus on individual spirituality and interior mysticism. This multilingual religiosity generated a spirituality that Simone Wazan has described as, I quote, the curious blend of Cistercian and Beguine mysticism common to the Diocese of Liège. That curious blend inspired new liturgical observance, such as the Feast of Corpus Christi, and new hagiography like Lutgard's, emphasizing visionary experience and verbal devotion. So Lutgard was born in Tongeren, Belgium in 1182, entered the Benedictine order in 1194, took vows in 1202, changed orders, became a Cistercian in 1208. She spent the next 30 years developing a visionary mysticism marked by prophetic knowledge and Eucharistic piety in particular. And she died in 1246. The Latin Vita is thought to have been written down within two years of her death by her spiritual friend and confessor, Thomas of Contemporay, a Dominican friar who had previously written Vitae of contemporary visionaries Marie Douanier, Christina Mirabilis, and Marguerite Dupre. While Thomas's Vita was very likely intended to promote Lutgard's canonization, she was never actually formally canonized, but her cult continued to flourish for centuries. 
She remains known within Catholic circles as the patroness of the blind because she went blind later in her life. As a founding figure of the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, she has an exchange of hearts with Christ at one point, very early in that tradition. And as an unofficial patron saint of Flanders, due to her miraculous inability to learn French, a miracle I too have performed. She enjoyed a brief <laughs> she enjoyed a brief resurgence of popularity in the 20th century when Thomas Merton translated her life as the devotional text "What Are These Wounds?" in 1950, and she has of course received academic attention as one of the many women in Caroline Bynum's Holy Feast and Holy Fast. But I argue this reputation reflects only one aspect of her identity. Equally important to the structure of her vita were her many visionary conversations with Jesus and the exemplary speaking role she played within her community. Throughout her life, Christ talks to Lutgard, and as a result, her speech becomes increasingly authoritative. Indeed, by book three of the vita, Lutgard's speech has begun to be recognized, quote, as if divinely proclaimed from heaven. By tracing the narrative development of this speech, we can see how the Vita authorizes visionary translation and promotes women's verbal devotion. Visionary translation marks the spiritual development of both Lutgard and her community. Early in the text, she has no inclination for a religious life and appears inclined towards marriage. She's in fact uh, uh, portrayed as entertaining a string of suitors in the parlor. And in one of these moments, um, her debut as a visionary translator redirects her spiritual career. And here's our example. Once, when the simple girl was sitting in conversation with a young man, Christ appeared to her in that human form in which he had once lived among mortals. Drawing back from his breast the garments in which he was seen to be covered, he showed the wound in his side, bleeding as if recently opened, and he said, do not seek any longer the caresses of unseemly love. Contemplate here what you should love and why you should love it. Here, I pledge that you shall attain the delights of total purity, a totally different kind of delight than what she had been headed for. <laughs> While the written narrative may seem to simply recount Lookard's reception of Christ's speech, the direct quotation and transition from images to verbal modes of spiritual understanding reveal her participation in the narrative. As the recipient of this vision, Lookard would have had to narrate the episode to Thomas in order for it to appear in the text. Furthermore, while the vision begins with a vivid description of Christ's appearance in his human body and his passion wounds, visual imagery quickly transitions to spoken instructions about how to understand those images and then make progress in her spiritual life. And while Christ initially directs Lookard in conventional affective devotion, gazing upon the wounds, etc., he concludes with a pledge, an explicitly verbal construct through which to understand and eventually surpass the visual imagery with which he begins. After she has entered the religious life, the text continues to formulate Lutgard's sanctity and exemplarity through visions and speech while adding literacy into her holy traits. And this is rather a long episode, but it's quite important, so I'll read it. Once she noticed a poor little woman in dire need, and she was instructed by a wondrous spirit of compassion to do her some good. At once, the Lord, and in, uh, in Lutgard's vita, the Lord is always Jesus. It's never the Father or the Spirit. The Lord said to her, in the psalm you read and say to me, O Lord, my portion, I have said I would keep your law. This is how you should understand it. I am your portion, you have nothing else. So then, you should respond to the needy woman. Gold and silver I have none, but what I have, I give you. If you pray for her, you will have kept. Um, you will have given her what is yours. You will have kept my law. Enlightened inwardly in a wondrous manner by these words of God, she came to Lady Sibyl de Gage, who is... Um, the uh, superior of her community, and reported what the Lord had told her. 
When Sibyl looked up the gloss for that passage in the Psalter, she discovered that the Lord's response to Lutgord accorded exactly with the gloss. This shows that the Holy Scriptures are expounded by the same spirit by which they were composed. So in this passage, Christ instructs Lutgard to speak and to pray on behalf of a community member. Her speech becomes both individual devotional practice and publicly performed piety. The episode further authorizes Lutgard's speech through textual confirmation. After she repeats the divine instructions to her superior, they discover that this divine speech accords exactly with the biblical gloss. The episode draws a parallel between scripture, the glosses of scripture, the divine speech Lutgard receives in her soul, and her prayers. Thomas's concluding observations reinforce this parallel, suggesting an equivalent authority for Christ's speech, Lutgard's speech, her life, the Psalms, and the gloss. A network of authority, imitation, and exemplarity that blends the verbal and the textual, the human and the divine, and the contemporary and textual communities through speech. Once again, that speech is Lutgard's visionary translation, which now includes Christ's directions for her future speech to a community member. This narrative blend of the verbal, the textual, and the visionary reveals how vitae such as Lutgard's had begun to reflect and shape new configurations of women's hagiography and sanctity. Finally, I want to consider the way in which Lutgard's vita promotes verbal, spoken devotion over physical asceticism and affective piety. It exists alongside them, but as the vita progresses, uh, the verbal becomes markedly preferred by Christ. Lutgard participates in physical mortification throughout, the, throughout her life. She often fasts on behalf of sinners. But when it comes to excessive affective piety, Christ commands her to abstain. As here, this is at the end of book one of the Vita. There are three books. The Lord appeared to her when she was weeping and wailing, saying, I wish you to be consoled in these lamentations for my sinners, nor will I allow you any longer to weary yourself in tears. Rather, you will persist in prayer with a peaceful fervor, and by this means you will worthily avert the Father's wrath, just as you formerly did with tears. Here, verbal devotion, rather than affective piety or asceticism, becomes the spiritually useful labor. By reformulating hagiography as the written record of a contemporary woman's visionary translation and verbal devotion, rather than as a record of physical passion and martyrdom, the text offers a new model of women's exemplarity. It presents visionary spirituality as a discourse in which a woman can participate, and by extension, appropriate positions of lived, textual, and verbal authority. This reconfiguration of generic norms allows us to see women's contributions to the changing currents of high medieval hagiography, and further, how this participation established a precedent for women's visionary vernacular texts in subsequent centuries. I want to conclude my discussion of this first example by turning to the question of audience and circulation. I have argued that Lutgard's Vita offered female readers a devotional model of visionary experience and spoken devotion that influenced women's devotional culture more broadly. The material history of the Vita and its translations shows us tangible proof of that readership and influence. A relatively large number of manuscripts containing the Latin Vita survive. All but one can be traced to a female monastic community or copyist. Further, the Vita's history of translation into Dutch and French all of which occurred within 50 years of the Latin Vita's composition, as well as the precious materials devoted to some of those translations, show a long history of women's reading in different social and religious contexts in both the Latin and the vernacular. And this is the, um, uh, this is the Dutch verse translation of the life of Lutgard, which is currently in, um, in Copenhagen. So, moving on, we turn to 
my next example, a visionary translation, which comes from late medieval England, the book of Marjorie Kemp. Written most likely during the 1430s, Marjorie's book recounts her years of visionary encounters with Christ and his mother, her struggle to live a holy life as a married laywoman, her pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and her often contentious encounters with figures from all levels of society at home and abroad who failed to appreciate her dramatic, public, and often disruptive piety. And I hope you'll forgive the Google map of um, Kings Lynn here, which was um, the clearest I could find for us today. Yeah. Like Lutgard's Vita, Marjorie's book presents her as a collaborative author who orally dictated her many years of visionary experiences to a male scribe who wrote them down. But Marjorie's text is not Latin hagiography, but vernacular autobiography. And while the book draws on hagiographic traditions, it departs from them in its selective presentation of her experiences and its extended description of Marjorie's difficult search for a willing scribe. Um, she has a really hard time getting someone to agree to write down her life story. Despite this authorial difficulty, however, and perhaps even because of it, Marjorie's identity as Christ's visionary translator becomes one of the most important parts of the book, providing many of the most important episodes and ultimately offering readers a model for devotional engagement. Marjorie's book contains more of Christ's visionary speech than any other text I examine. By analyzing Marjorie as a visionary translator, we can see a deliberately structured narrative of rhetorical imitation that moves us from direct quotation of Christ to rhetorically imitating Christ, to responsive speech that becomes a script. Rather than present the word of God to her audiences and then interpret it for them, Marjorie recounts Christ's speech and then offers her own speech as an example of how to respond. In this way, the book offers readers a more accessible mode of engagement with Christ than we might imagine for women in late medieval literary culture. Throughout the book, Christ's visionary speech always directly applies to Marjorie and usually occurs in response to her prayers or meditations. He directs her verbal devotion with instructions such as, I bid and command you, boldly call me Jesus, your love. And fear not, daughter, you shall have victory over your enemies. I shall give you grace enough to answer every clerk in the love of God. She's often running up against people who want to challenge her spiritual authority and having to defend her positions. Christ is always there to reassure her as well. It's very, very convenient. These instructions characterize Marjorie's public and private speech as remarkably permissive devotional acts. Christ tells Marjorie, leave your praying of many beads and think such thoughts as I will put in your mind. I give you permission to pray until six o'clock to say what you want. Then you shall lie still and speak to me in your thoughts, and I shall give you high meditation and true contemplation. Here, Christ re replaces prayers of the rosary with his own visionary speech. Additionally, he emphasizes the individual and extemporaneous nature of the devotional speech he asks of her, combining the speech he himself will put in her mind and the speech that she will think as she wills. As the visionary translator, Marjorie translates Christ's instructions for her own devotional life, just like Lutgard, but she expands the conceptual category of Christ's speech far beyond that of the Latin Vita to include future private instruction beyond the text. Even further, through visionary translation, she authorizes her own speech in turn as an acceptable mode of private devotion. Furthermore, throughout the book, Marjorie's visionary translation establishes a divine rhetoric that encompasses the speech of believers within the speech of the Savior. Christ explains to Marjorie, I am in you, and you are in me. And they that hear you, they hear the voice of God. Daughter, there is no sinful man living in earth who, if he will forsake his sin and do according to your counsel, such grace as you promise him, I will confirm for your love. 
This passage, with its apostolic echoes of divine commandment, redefines Christ's word as the interpretation and invention of his speech performed by the visionary within the community. Visionary translation thus establishes a divine rhetoric within which Marjorie begins to speak in response to and on behalf of Christ himself. Her speech, to which we now turn, models that participation. Marjorie's public speech initially functions as literal translation of Christ's visionary speech. In her encounter with the Bishop of Lincoln, for example, Marjorie prays that Christ will tell her what she ought to say to the bishop, and Christ immediately replies, Daughter, say to the bishop that he dreads more the shame of this world than the perfect love of God. Tell him, though he will not do it now, it will be done another time when God wills. So she gives her message, um, she gave her message to the Bishop of Lincoln as she had in commandment. Such straightforward translation demonstrates Marjorie's ability to act as a faithful mouthpiece for the word of God. Her obedience functions as the most literal type of imitatio Christi and confirms her as a divinely authorized speaker and obedient visionary. This devotional mode, however, does not last. Over the course of the book, Marjorie's visionary translation develops from reporting Christ's speech into full-blown conversations between them. She often portrays their conversations as reciprocal, using contractual language to indicate mutual obligation and suggesting the spiritual power of her speech. For example, chapter eight portrays Christ and Marjorie engaging in a very legalistic dialogue. She says, Lord, since you've forgiven me my sin, I make you my executor of all the good works that you work in me. In praying and thinking, in weeping and pilgrimage, in fasting or in speaking any good word, it is fully my will that you give Master N half to increase his merit as if he did them himself. And the other half, Lord, spread among your friends and your enemies and among my friends and enemies, for I will have only you for my reward. It's very nice of her. And Christ says, daughter, I shall be a true executor to you and fulfill all your will. And because of the great charity that you have to comfort your even Christian, you shall have double reward in heaven. Um, there's a lot to say about this passage, but for my purposes here, we can note how this exchange establishes speech as a valuable commodity, able to secure salvational credit. Further, by depicting the dialogue as a visionary conversation between Marjorie and Christ, the book foregrounds her participation. She reports the speech of both parties. Finally, by imagining Christ as the executor of her spiritual estate, Marjorie positions her speech as able to elicit divine response, even as she offers readers a model of dialogic engagement through which to speak themselves into this verbal economy of salvation. Finally, Marjorie's visionary translation becomes a strategy of self-authorization. She translates Christ's visionary quotation for her own prayers. Christ quotes Marjorie's habit of saying to me in your mind, as truly, Lord, as you love me, make me clean from all sin and give me grace to worthily receive your precious body with all manner of worship and reverence. So this is Christ speaking to Marjorie and quoting her own prayers back to her. Christ describes these prayers approvingly, telling her to know well that I hear your prayer, for you may not say a better word to my liking than as truly as I love you. As divine rhetoric blends into verbal devotion, the book encourages readers to imitate Marjorie's prayers and perhaps by extension, her relationship with Christ. This rhetorical and devotional innovation locates Christ's speech in the present moment, not only of the narrator, but of the reader. Christological subjectivity merges with authorial subjectivity and with the reader's subjectivity in the future moment. That moment is the moment of reading. The production and reception of the text becomes the reproduction of the union through discourse with Christ. 
In this way, Marjorie's book and the modes of reading it elicited offered increasingly participatory modes of engagement with the Word of God. So to conclude my, uh, uh, my discussion of Marjorie, I want to turn to what the material history of the book can tell us about its influence and audience. Unlike Lutgard's Vita, the book does not survive in multiple copies. We have only one mid-15th century manuscript dated to the 1440s. Yet we know that the book was known and read at least through the 16th century. In 1501, Winken de Word printed a short treatise of contemplation taught by our Lord Jesus Christ or taken out of the book of Marjorie Kemp, Anchors of Lynn. This four-page quarter pamphlet consists of 28 excerpts from the book and a woodblock print of the crucifixion shown there on the left, forming a text roughly 1 18th the size of the original. The selections consist almost exclusively of verbal exchanges between Marjorie and Christ. Christ speaks in 20 selections, Marjorie speaks in five, and three passages describe Marjorie's interior devotion in response to him. Then in 1521, the short treatise reappeared as part of Henry Pepwell's devotional compilation, The Cell of Self-Knowledge. These striking moments of editorial refashioning transform Marjorie's book into a record of Christ's conversation with a typical medieval woman and perpetuate a carefully constructed textual version of her as a pious contemplative whose exemplary internal devotion provide readers with an acceptable model of orthodox piety, hardly the text or the narrator with which modern readers of the book of Marjorie Kemp are familiar. These editions reveal the early devotional and literary traditions within which Marjorie and her book were received and demonstrate a desire to read the text in opposition to modern critical impulses. To see Christ as the main speaker of the book and Marjorie as the anchoress taught contemplation through his words. He becomes central and she becomes peripheral. This reversal of conventional critical views of Marjorie as author and narrator suggests a productive alternative view of the book. By allowing Christ's voice to speak as directly as Marjorie claimed he spoke to her, these versions of the book appear as the popular record of a dialogue aspiring to teach vernacular readers just as Marjorie herself has been taught and of a visionary woman as a model for the larger reading community. So I turn now back to Alite Bakke and her Middle Dutch devotional guides for women. The 15th century Priorison visionary is usually discussed, if she is discussed at all, as a tragic example of a medieval woman's frustrated ambitions. As a spiritually precocious young woman, Bakke sought a religious life in which she could develop her mystically inflected spirituality. Sometime around 1438, when she was in her mid-20s, she moved from Utrecht to the convent of Galilea in Ghent. You can see Utrecht is up there by number 11, and she moved down to Ghent, which is number two on the map. Uh, where, um, and Ghent was, uh, Galilea in Ghent was a member of the chapter of Windesheim, which makes it a part of the Devotio Moderna. In 1440, she entered the novitiate and took her vows in 1441. By 1445, she had been elected the prioress. Over the next 10 years, she produced a wide variety of texts intended as spiritual guidance for her own nuns at Galilea, as well as within the broader Windesheim community. Her program of literary and spiritual reform, however, eventually attracted the attention of authorities. In the beginning of 1455, her works were banned, and she was removed from office and exiled to the convent of Facon in Antwerp, where she died in October of that same year. Bakke's efforts at communal reform through personal, literary, and spiritual example excuse me, example, had wider consequences for women throughout the Devotio Moderna. The Acta Capituli Windischimensis, the chapter of Windesheim's prohibition of authorship, translation, and even possession of vernacular mystical books by sisters was issued in April of 1455. 
While the general decree does not mention Bakke by name, critical consensus interprets the prohibition of women's ownership or production of philosophical teachings or revelations as official resistance to Bakke and her texts. As Vivian Shamsma has put it, it is clear as day that this ban is connected to the drama that unfolded around Alait Bakke. So as I've told it here, um, Bakke offers a stereotypical cautionary tale about the dangers of gendered authorship and authority in the later Middle Ages. While she was initially successful in her attempts to develop a more rigorous mode of spiritual life, her ascension to a position of authority within the convent, when combined with the position of authority she appropriated through writing, proved too potentially destabilizing for monastic authorities. While this narrative may be true, I want to suggest that it does not offer us the whole story. I argue that Bakke developed a program of personal and communal reform for her female readers by translating her visionary encounters with Christ into vernacular prose devotion, and that those treatises encouraged a specifically rhetorical interior spirituality that outlasted the censure of her lifetime. Bakke's texts instruct female readers in interior encounter with Christ as a mode of reforming what she perceived as the flagging spiritual zeal among the Sisters of Galilea and the larger community of the Devotio Moderna. The Devotio Moderna, technically a lay movement that was eventually incorporated within the Augustinian order, was a reformist movement originating in the late medieval Low Countries that advocated communal life founded on asceticism, piety, and works modeled on the early Christian church. Reading and textual production played an important role in the daily life of these communities. Both women and men were encouraged to read vernacular texts as part of devotional life and to discuss them amongst themselves. Bakke's texts emerge from this literary environment. Today I will turn to two of them. Her program of spiritual development, De Vere Krauswegen, or The Four Ways of the Cross, in which she translates Christ's visionary instructions for reforming the self into a rhetorically imitative devotional text, and her spiritual autobiography, Mein Beginn and Vortigank, or My Beginning and My Progress, which recounts the visionary confirmation she received from Christ for her leadership and reforming project. Bakke portrayed herself within both of these texts as a visionary and an example, first as the translator of Christ's biblical speech, and later as a vernacular example of rhetorical imitatio Christi. Her narrative self-presentation encourages female readers to interpret Christ's vernacular speech received in private devotion as spiritual instruction. This remarkably participatory model of rhetorical, authorial, and spiritual practice offered a precedent for female authors and readers in Middle Dutch until well into the 17th century. De Vere Krauswegen combines multiple modes of translation in its representation of Christ. In this passage from the third way, for example, Bakke performs a straightforward quotation, translation, and application of Christ's biblical speech. She writes, when Christ had called his disciples, then he said, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened. I desire you thus to seek and to knock and to ask according to the foresaid points. This passage asks readers to respond to linguistic translations of Christ's biblical speech through private meditation. At the same time, that translation substitutes Bakke's text as the authority directing her reader's spiritual progress rather than scripture even while referencing the authorized discourse of biblical authority. As Rita Copeland has shown, such translation presents itself as subordinate to an authoritative source, even while displacing it. Bakke's linguistic translations of Christ, then, authorize her own narrative position beyond conventional boundaries acceptable for female authors, while encouraging her female readers to engage imaginatively with her text as daily spiritual practice. Further, 
Bakke creates the narrative desire for Christ's vernacular speech by encouraging readers to cultivate receptivity to his absent voice. In the complete passage from the third way that we saw earlier, she provides her readers with a template for prayer that promises response. And I'm not going to read this because we saw it already. As we noted previously, the passage invites readers to inhabit a speaking position that promises to result in future dialogue with Jesus. This type of open subject position, the presentation of recommended discourse with the first person attributed to the reader, is often found within devotional texts instructing readers in specific prayers, like both of the texts that we began the talk with. But while most devotional texts simply recommend virtuous spiritual practice, de Vierkauswegen suggests a specific outcome as a result of performing the speech. It promises personal conversation with Christ. He shall speak in you, the narrative says. Further, this passage demonstrates a remarkable willingness to imagine Christ as perpetually speaking to individuals who might never repeat, report, or even record those words, but might still use those words as the foundation for their devotional lives. This expansive and reciprocal understanding of Christ's speech echoes Marguerite's presentation of her visionary conversations, but relocates Christ's part of that conversation within the reader's future devotion beyond the text. This mode of devotion destabilizes clerical or monastic oversight by showing, in the words of Anna Bolman, that Bakke, quote, placed higher priority on the personal experience of God than on the Windesheim convent rule. The text of six years later, Bakke's autobiography, uh, My Beginning in Progress, further expands visionary translation into verbal devotion. The visionary translation of Christ's speech takes different forms as the narrative progresses, including direct speech, indirect speech, and even the translation of visual images into spoken language. Throughout the text, however, Christ's speech consistently appears as a result of Bakke's prayers. It confirms her speech as an authoritative and devotional model and encourages readers to understand dialogues with Christ not only as a process in which they can participate, but as one they can instigate. For example, in the episode of the Ascension Day Vigil of 1441, Bakke describes her internal struggle with questions of faith and vocation, and the result... Christ came nearer to her and stood before her spirit and said, Oh, why do you flee from me? And I desire you so ardently. Oh, come to me. Thou art wholly mine, and I am again unyielding against you, and we will never more be parted after we are now joined and united. Therefore, look on me. We have a return to that mode of the love language of bridal mysticism that echoes the Song of Songs. Um, we saw this type of mysticism and language in Lukard's and Marjorie's texts. However, Bakke relocates this conventional mode of female piety from the external environment of monastic regulation to the scene of unregulated interior encounter. She further authorizes herself as a devotional model through visionary translation in dialogue, much like Marjorie. For example, she describes how Christ teaches her to interpret his visionary lessons through conversation. And here we have them going back and forth. He tells her to look into his, um, his visions, his face, see what, and his heart, to see what she can find there. And she initially protests, I, I found nothing, nothing, dear Lord. And he says again, well, what did you find? And she says, oh, nothing but all perfect love and friendship. He spoke and said, yes, believe me then, that I have entirely forgiven you, etc." So in this dialogue, Christ teaches her how to correctly interpret the visionary apparition of his heart and face, um, as love, friendship, and forgiveness. She translates visual imagery into verbal instruction, thus foregrounding her own participation in the rhetorical construction of divine speech and offering her conversations and interpretive practices as examples for her readers. So finally, 
Once she's established her authority as Christ's translator, Bakke presents her own speech as a powerful model that projects the speech of Christ and her readers into the future. She explains that wherever I go or stand or sit or lie, then shall I speak to our Lord and ask of him and speak to him with these words, so shall my enemies flee from me and I shall by my own voice become created and forget these fantasies and images. For if I hear my own voice thus spoken, then shall I hear him thereafter and with the humility that I shall thus gain, so I shall forget other things. By directly quoting her own speech, just as she has quoted Christ throughout her text up to this point, Bakke presents herself as authoritative. As a model that figures speech as preferable to images, she suggests that the power of, her, that the power of such speech to elicit divine response, and she implies that every reader might request and then interpret Christ's speech received during some future moment of private devotion as spiritual guidance. In effect, she invites her readers to participate in the rhetorical construction of divine guidance that she has modeled within her texts, but outside of those texts. So to conclude my discussion of Alec Bakke, we might consider the material history of de Vere Krauswegen. The three surviving manuscripts all include the text as part of compilations that combine multiple vernacular devotional guides produced and circulated by the Devotio Moderna in the 15th and the 16th centuries. While Bakke was unsuccessful in her efforts to translate Christ's speech into communal reform during her lifetime then, her texts remain eloquent witnesses to the desire to hear Christ speaking in the vernacular as a devotional guide, spiritual instructor, and perhaps even reforming agent. Women's visionary translation had begun to circulate as acceptable devotional reading, even despite official censure. So as we've seen throughout these examples, over the course of the later Middle Ages, women's visionary translation, divine rhetoric, and verbal devotion became templates for participation in the larger sphere of religious literacy. Each of these authors and texts offers a remarkably consistent depiction of its female narrator as a visionary and a participant in textual production. Each portrays Christ as a speaker and a conversationalist, and each provides devotional guidance to an implicit or explicit female audience. Each not only reveals an understanding of female sanctity and exemplarity, grounded in visionary translation, but also invites readers to participate in that tradition through interpretation or speech. Further, the material history of these texts attests to an ongoing readership beyond the Middle Ages. Indeed, it suggests that the visionary translator and her conversations with Christ became a literary and religious trope with the legacy that continues to reverberate throughout devotional culture. By reassessing our view of women as readers, authors, and speakers in the production of medieval religious texts, we readjust our understanding of gendered agency and spiritual authority within critical narratives of medieval women's religious experience, of oral narrative within the production of religious texts in both Latin and the vernacular, of visionary translation within the genres of hagiography and vernacular theology, and of rhetoric and speech as devotional companions or even alternatives to affectivity and asceticism. Finally, by reading women's visionary texts as a distinctly gendered literary tradition, we discover new starting points for investigations into the literary and devotional cultures of the high and late Middle Ages, and perhaps even their lasting influence. Thank you. your questions for Barbara. I forgot to pass around our address sheet. If there's anyone who would like to be uh, added to our mailing list, I'll just uh, pass this around. Whoops, can I ask you to, Anna, can you pass that around? Oops, and here's
Here's a, here's a pen. Um, and now, um, uh, Barbara can take your questions. If there are people who have to leave for 2 o'clock classes, we understand. Um, if you can stay for another half hour for discussion, please introduce yourself. And uh, let's see, do we have a microphone? Um, would you like to bring it over? Hi, thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. I'm Joan Listernick. I'm a postdoc here. And um, I found very interesting your overarching theme of devotional guidance as a source of authority. Mm -hmm. And my question concerns um, a comparison with a more modern text, um, which is Mother Teresa's memoir, which mm -hmm. was a compilation of her letters which she asked to be burnt and was, of course, published as her, as her autobiography. And um, there, so she also speaks directly to Christ and, 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 and hears his voice. And um, there in the beginning, the church um, tests her, gives her a test to try to determine whether she's actually speaking to Christ. And the initial test is that she not act on what Christ says mm -hmm. to her but that she delay out of obedience to the church. And she does this and remains in prayer. And it was very, very hard for her because she felt the urgency, you're obviously really familiar with this, of, of Christ's voice that she should act right away. But she, her obedience was a test. So my question is, um, given that there is a, a motivation not to accept, um, as you mentioned, devotional um, uh, guidance as a source of authority because it potentially puts the individual in conflict with structures of authority. Um, how did this work itself out for the, particularly for the two women who were in the church? Were was there any um, parallel experience as in as in Mother Teresa's case? Was there a test? Were their words accepted? Was it accepted or not accepted? And how was this decided? That's a great question. And it's a really complex and long answer, right? Um, I think I could say simply by sticking with the examples I've talked about today, you know, that kind of literary, it, that too is a trope, right? The visionary woman um, experiences a visitation from God. He directs her to do something, either to write or to speak or to perform some kind of act, action in the world. And because of either her own reticence or clerical oversight, perhaps she kind of you know, refuses to or abstains or kind of puts it off, puts it off. And usually in, in these types of visionary texts, um, she'll get sick or something bad will happen or she'll have bad luck or just like generally speaking, things will not go well until she obeys Christ. Um, the best outcome of that, right, is that then authorities recognize, oh, this really was divinely ordained. She was supposed to do that, right? Um, but of course, the other side of the story is that someone is someone like Allied Bakke, right, who clearly marched to the beat of her own drum, right, felt that she needed to obey God no matter what the um, monastic authorities felt about her texts. And as a result, her texts were banned, she was removed from power, um, and she lost um, an audience that she had, had as the, um, as the spiritual director of her convent. So um, I think that that particular type of, um, what would you call it, configuration, right? Visionary 
worldly authority, Christ, is present in almost all of the texts that I look at. And it's often dramatized within the text as a mode of additional authorization, right? Um, but it's always subordinated very cleverly to the divine authority of Christ, right? It's always the narrative voice usually um, says something after the fact of, and of course, this is how everyone came to see that you know this was uh, the will of God. And so in those cases where that doesn't happen, they do tend to stick out exceptionally to us, right? Like Alec Bakke or um, even Marguerite right, who we read in our class this semester and who is, was executed as a heretic. Right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really important question and an important part of all of these stories. Thank you. Okay, I've almost forgotten my question now. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Barbara. I just wanted to ask, I, I think it's really a version of the same question probably, but, but um, the, the relationship between, between enclosed women and their, and their religious rules is, is, is vexed remarkably early on. Um, it's already being vexed in the early 13th century in, in England in, in Ankara Nawissa, which starts off by saying, this is not a rule and then says the rule is the inner rule, not the outer rule, and then proceeds to give an outer rule, and then to give an inner rule. And, and this is a puzzle to me, <laughs> because I, I sort of wonder how the, how the um, I, I wonder how you're supposed to live in that, in that tension, um, and, it's, and how monasticism is supposed to survive in that space of tension as well, which I think is an interesting question. So I suppose to try to make this into a question, um, does she write about community? Um, does she write about Bakker? I'm thinking of. Sorry. Um, does Bakker write about community? Does she write when she when you said that she has a reform agenda? I mean, reform is personal, but it's also institutional, and she's an institutional authority figure before she's deposed, and then that sort of slightly whitewashing-looking ban is is imposed, which one shouldn't take probably too serious. I mean, that too is a literary text that's trying to get everybody out of an awkward situation or something like, so, I mean, that's presumably, that's an outward facing yeah. Latin, it was Latin? Yeah. Latin text as well as an inward facing legislative or quasi-legislative act. So does she, is she interested in the institutional structure that she's working with and in fact leading? Short answer, yes. Um, she talks about it throughout at least three of her longer texts, um, not in the autobiography, but in, there's one um, that translates to the, from the cloister, right? It's, um, yeah, the convent teachings, yeah. She does talk specifically about reforming the community. The community has fallen into too much chit-chat. The sisters are not up to the standards. They're talking together far too much. And this, of course, is a very interesting kind of uh, double-sided problem for specifically for Devotio Moderna communities because part of their daily life was supposed to be exercises like Colossian and Samensprachen, which were talking together about the things of God um, and talking together about the text that they read. And so part of the reason that she wrote so much, I think, is because she thought they ought to be talking about better texts than the ones that they preferred. And so, yes, I think, um, and I think that I need to figure out the English analog of that, absolutely. I do think that the Ancrina Wissa is doing something similar. Um, but I think that there is, throughout this whole tradition that I'm trying to chart, both you know, 
Low Countries, Northern France, and England, I think it takes slightly different shape um, in response to um, lay piety and monastic piety in conversation. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important problem that I think I have the answer to in the Low Countries, but not yet in England. Yeah. I'll just slide this over to you. <laughs> Thank you, Barbara, for a brilliant talk. I learned so much from, from you. Um, I am an outsider to your field, and as you know, I'm interested in rituals. So I have a question about um, authority and ritual life for these women monastics. What's interesting to me is how they emphasize speech, as you mm -hmm. um, explained um, eloquently. I wonder if there's any incidents that touch on the issue of sacraments, especially the Eucharist, yes. because that's very much the realm of male authority. And has, ever, has there been ever a vision of a woman being given bread by Christ, etc.? Has that ever been pushed, that boundary? Yes. Well, my answer today will be yes. That will be the answer that's to everyone's question. Um, in fact, we can think about Lutgard, right? She has a very long Latin life. Um, she has a lot of conversations with Jesus during the Eucharist, specifically during the elevation of the host. Christ often appears during that moment of the Mass and says, this is how you should understand what's happening. That would be my body right there, right? And sometimes she will even have a... Um, a kind of a doubled visionary experience in which Christ will be explaining how the Eucharist works to her and she will then see the Eucharist as a, a I can't remember if she sees a lamb or a child. I will look it up for you, right? But she, she is shown and told, right, what the Eucharist means and visionary experience um, often happens during the Eucharist for a great deal of women living in the Liegeois situation. Um, but also, I'm trying to think... Um, of ritual more broadly, Eucharist is big, particularly in the High Middle Ages, but then once we get to the later Middle Ages, other rituals are important too. Julian of Norwich experiences her visions on her deathbed when um, her, you know, the priest is called to her bedside so that she can have the last rites. Like that's the moment when she has the visionary experience that she then spends 30 years thinking about writing and revising. So absolutely, um, another Dutch text that I work with, um, well, actually, I was just thinking of another high medieval example from the Low Countries, which is Hadwick. All of her visions are um, precisely located within a particular liturgical observance, Pentecost, Ascension, right? Something, there's a liturgical frame for the experiences that she has. And so this becomes an organizing principle for monastic women um, that we actually, well, and, and semi-lay women that we sort of lose as we move later in time. So yeah, it's very big in the high medieval texts. It's less so by the time we get to the 15th century. Oh, was it threatening? That is a harder question. Can you repeat the question. Yeah, Anna asked whether um, you know having Christ, for example, appear and, and um, explain the Eucharist during the Mass, if that's you know destabilizing and threatening for male authority figures. I think that it works. Um, it works differently in different times and places. I think that it's sort of um, destabilizing yet contained within a vita such as Lutgard's, right? Because that text is ostensibly written down by Thomas of Canterbury. He's a man, he's writing in Latin. So even though this is a extremely one might, I hesitate to use the word subversive, right? But there is a subversive quality to that moment of, you know, the visionary explanation of personal devotion replacing um, liturgical observance. It's still something that's within an officially sanctioned text. Now when you get 
later into the 14th and 15th centuries in visionary texts written by visionaries in their own languages without Latin association or clerical oversight, it becomes much more destabilizing. And you do get people sort of running into trouble um, or you know, having questions raised about the orthodoxy of their text at that time. Yeah. Hi, thank you. I was wondering, is, is there a vision in visionary, a visual is what I mean, uh, any reference to um, uh, prints or drawings or paintings or wall sculptures and things in the churches that, that would be some inspiration? Uh, so it just mm -hmm. seems like there, there's such a proliferation of those images around this time. And early, much earlier. So yeah. I'm wondering if, if any of them refer to it in particular. Uh, painting or uh, visual that they've seen, or uh, are they truly visionary beyond <laughs> actual visual productions? It's a it's a great question, um, and there's been a fair amount of work on it. Um, essentially, it's very rare within a visionary text, such as the ones that I work on, for a visionary woman to say, you know, I was looking at X thing, or to make a reference to a specific example of visual culture, but that doesn't mean that those uh, represented images aren't often identical to things that you can go see in a church, right, or um, carved inside a cathedral, et cetera, et cetera. So the prevailing wisdom on this, I think, is that um, vision, visionary culture and visual culture are mutually informing, right? And so much of the you might say visual imaginary of the type of, of the women who would have this type of experience is deeply informed by their lived experience of the church space around them, you know, of um, sculpture, of art, et cetera. So yes, I think those things go hand in hand. And just because we can't, you know, record a visionary, you know, pointing to a particular painting doesn't mean, and I think in fact it works the other way. I think, I think those were the templates upon which their imaginative lives, their devotional lives were built. Yeah. Thank you for that presentation, it was really good. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So in one of them you mentioned that the word Lord specifically talked to Jesus. I don't remember which one that was. Um, oh, it's Marjorie, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was Marjorie. It was Marjorie. I should know that. There she is, yeah. Um, so how do we know that that is just Jesus? And how mm -hmm. does that change the reading of the other ones when they're talking mm -hmm. to God? Like, are they talking to God as Trinity? Are they talking to a specific one? And does that change our understanding of what they're saying? That is an excellent question. Um, and so for in Marjorie Kemp specifically, we know it's Jesus because at the very beginning of the book, he comes and sits on the edge of her bed, right? And they have their first conversation. And she says, there's a... There's a line that I can't quote for you at that point, right? But she says, and in this way, you know, other vision, in this way proceeded the many visions that, you know, the book will recount. And so we know that it's, it's Jesus Christ. Um, in other texts, all of the texts, in fact, that I work with in the book, um, the predominant um, title is, is Christ or Christus, right? So it's always, um, it's always the second person. But it's a more important question because of what Christ does, right? 
theologically for these women. Like he's, he's the second person of the Trinity, right? He is both God and man. And that is why he has speech. That's why he has the voice. Um, that's why he's the word of God. And so that particular identity is essential, right? And all of the texts take great rhetorical care to point out that it's Jesus. It's, um, there is one exception to this, which is a Dutch sermon cycle um, in which uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit appear to give um, appear to give uh, Colossian or, or daily addresses to the visionaries. But um, their speech is very different, and Christ's speech always deals with pastoral care, whereas the, um, the moments where the Holy Spirit speaks are always much more abstract and allegorical. So I think we can say that it's important that it's Christ. It's, um, he appears specifically because he is there to give directions for um, lived devotional practice because he himself was human, right, at, at some historical point. And so that's a, and, and because of that, he offers the template for the imitatio, right? And that imitatio is the important uh, rhetorical device that these texts are offering um, and modeling for their readers, yeah. I'm not sure if this question might be a clarification of the one that was down at the corner or if it's just kind of extended from that, but, um, thinking in terms of the after effects of the visionary encounter and the, the translation that you're talking about. Um, are there examples of, uh, to use your term, translation that comes out in visual ways? Like so in order, in other words, paintings of the visions of mm -hmm. Alet or paintings of the visions of Marjorie or whatever. Um, and if there are, what would that suggest? And if there aren't, might that be significant for your thinking about it in kind of textual ways? Yes, yes, once again, yes, the answer is yes. Um, there are a lot of visual representations of the visionary experience like this one, right? Um, this is a 17th century um, depiction of Lucard's vision of Christ when he invites her to come embrace him and drink from his wound. And this is that moment um, put into, you know, visual form. Um, I think that... Like, so is kind of the question, you know, what, what does that suggest, that we, that we have this kind of visual legacy? I think it suggests that people were reading these texts <laughs> and that these visuals, for lack of a better word, or um, sort of these imagined encounters had become somehow part of the religious imaginary of these figures. Lookard was um, still in the 17th century. She was a beloved figure in Flanders, and so that's why you have Gaspar de Crayer um, painting the scene. Um, so I think what it shows is a, another continuing testament to the fact that these texts were known and read and informed the devotional imagination of people who were living often in the regions where these people were from, but sometimes even further away because of circulation, because of print, once we get um, past that point. Yeah. Of the thing. So in other words, more yeah. are there more contemporary examples? Like this is a counter-Reformation so counter example, century. right? So that would suggest, you know, after the Reformation, there's that kind of return towards the kind there's of There's less late medieval. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not as much. It's not, in, it's really the counter-Reformation when you see this impetus begin. And a lot of that also has a political valence, right? Um, 17th century, you're getting towards like the Habsburgs, and so things are changing, right? Um, and I think that Lutgard at that point is becoming a 
a more political figure. She's beloved by the Flemish as opposed to the Francophone Wallonians. <laughs> um, and so she's taking on a new identity. But that devotional overlay remains important, and her text continues to circulate um, and testify to a certain type of female spirituality that had become a point of national pride by the time you get to the 17th century. And that's, I mean, I, my book can't go that far, but maybe the next book will, I think. So I'm not a medievalist, <laughs> so this is going to be a stupid question. <laughs> but thank you so much for your, your presentation. I, I guess my question is a, a, is a kind of auditory version of the visual one, um, that I, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing you speak more about um, uh, the auditory experience of God speaking to these uh, three women. Um, um, and how it works for them. I mean, I can see how some are just coming straight out of biblical text or devotional text or whatever, but there are others that are conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, is there any self-reflexive uh, ref um, statements in any of these uh, three women about how they perceive this auditory um, experience of conversing with Jesus? Um, um, uh, do, do they, um, so is this, uh, um, you see what I'm really getting at here, and, and are, are there any kind of obvious tropes in that, or any uh, obvious social spaces in which these conversations take place, or how the hearing takes place? Oh, That's like what I'm like the saying. literal hearing, like how are they hearing Jesus yes, talk Yes, how are they yeah. hearing, okay. and, and, do, and do they ever speak about how they hear hearing. Um, yes. Um, so often, Lutgard, once again, uh, she will say, I heard a voice in my ear over my shoulder during, during mass, right? She will, sometimes she will have an auditory um, experience that's purely auditory, right? She hears the voice. Um, more often, perhaps, there is a conventional description of a vision. Um, then appeared, she, was, she felt a rapture in the spirit, she, and, a, and Christ appeared before her in a vision, and she, he said to her, right? So there's this idea that the, the conversation is taking place within the interior space of visionary experience. Is that kind of part of the question, like where is it located? Yeah. So the majority of these experiences take place within interior visionary experience, and that trope goes back to Augustine, right? The idea of... Um, there are three orders of the visionary. They're corporeal, the spiritual, the intellectual, right? And um, that kind of classic, I had a vision, Jesus talked to me, is happening in the second order, right? Um, not the corporeal, but the spiritual, because it's located within the mind. Um, there are, as we get later in time, more and more instances of uh, dis conversations described without that explicitly visual visionary frame that are more just like, Oh, you might call them a locution, right? Christ said to me, right, in a very kind of like still, still small voice situation, right? Like either kneeling at prayer or in mass, I hear Christ speak in my ear to me. And this is a lot harder to pin down, right? Like what exactly is the space of that? And I think the space of that, I think it also, again, is the space of interior individual devotion because often in Vita of Saints, the, the text will take care to point out that the woman heard it Right? but no one else there did. 
So it was a private herd experience. It's not a communal one because her job is to make it available to the community. Right? So it's always very important that it's individual and that it's not something that other people get to share. It's always the internal individual experience. And that's part of the entire trope of visionary translation is that there's a kind of visionary imperative that is laid upon the recipient, right? That then it is their job to transmit, to transform, to translate for others. So it's important that it's always the interior space. Is that, is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I think I should know this, but did uh, male ecclesiastics ever have similar visionary experiences? This is a great question, and the answer is no. <laughs> um, there are a few. There are a few men that have, um, that have visions. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux springs to mind, right? Um, but far fewer than women. And this is a really curious... Um, so this wasn't yeah. schizophrenia by any chance. You know, I think that's a tough question, but it's an important one, right? Because that's, um, I think we have a real temptation, right, um, as modern people to try to say, well, she had migraines. <laughs> it was definitely schizophrenia. You know, um, you know, we, we want to diagnose that past well, experience. Well, schizophrenia is usually associated with deterioration, and I don't get yeah. the impression this is. Yeah, and I don't, I think that um, my answer to that is, you know, there's no way of knowing, of course, but I also am not sure that it's all that helpful to try to diagnose the medieval visionary in that way, because um, I think as a literary scholar, what matters to me is that they said it happened. Her readers believed that it did, and they read it, and they found it useful, and they practiced, you know, that experience. They, they attempted to also repeat it, and so it's... I mean, primarily because it's simply inaccessible to us, but um, secondarily because, you know, the endeavor of the literary scholar is simply to take the narrative at its word, you know? So I think, um, I don't know if that's a, a good enough answer, but um, I think it's absolutely possible. There could have been many reasons, right? But we can't ever know. And so I, I guess I want to avoid frustration <laughs> and instead decide what the text wants me to feel. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. But those visions, um, the biblical visions, right? Um, the old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions, right? Um, those visions, um, they function differently, right? So first of all, they're part of the sacred text. They are not, and these are not sacred texts, right? These are devotional texts. They are, um, they are vernacular texts. They are there for guidance. Um, and even the visions that we see in the Old Testament, they tend to be more, um, you know, like the transfiguration, right? The encounter with the burning bush. These are not the types of visions that these women are having, right? These women are having visions in which the central figure of their spiritual life, um, I don't want to say rewards them with the visionary encounter, but, um, but you know, confirms, affirms, appears to them in order to further um, spur on their devotional and spiritual progress. And it's described in a really different way than the biblical visions are. So yes, it is an important precedent, especially for the few exceptional cases when there are occasionally women who are visionaries in this way, who, um, whose translations of Christ are prophetic, right? Um, and this happens during the Great Schism. You have uh, female visionaries who... Um, 
you know, want to claim something like, well, Jesus uh, showed me that the Avignon papacy is not legitimate, and we should definitely return to Rome, <laughs> right? Um, and there's a very, um, there's a clear overt political um, quality to that, and that's a, that's a, that prophetic voice. But those are the exceptions, yeah. Um, and that, that kind of activation of a particular type of biblical tradition is there, but not, not I would say, the norm if any of this can have a norm, right? It's, it's all rather exceptional. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you may have answered my question uh, already halfway, uh, but I was wondering, um, uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, arrows and there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, authoritative discussion, authoritative uh, input coming from Christ. And I was wondering if there are instances of where there's some debate or some discernment or some discussion going on during these visions? Because um, a lot of the examples you've given us, they're basically Christ talking to these three women as opposed to having a discussion with her, as in the Old Testament, for example, where we've got the prophets you know, talking back and forth. Mm -hmm. Are there examples where these women are actually having some kind of a debate? Yes. Um a good example is as Alebake, right? So I gave us one little snippet of one of her conversations with Christ, where um, you know he's telling her to look and see, and she says, "I didn't see it." This kind of back and forth uh, conversation, and the later Dutch uh, visionary texts often have this type of conversational quality to them. And in fact, throughout the Book of Marjorie Kemp. Um, and even somewhat in Julian of Norwich's Revelation of Love, we do see that kind of um, conversational dialogic impulse. Um, and it just kind of depends on, I think it depends on genre, actually. So we don't get as much of that type of conversation in um, the earlier text, the hagiography, the vita, whether in Latin or vernacular, but we do see much more kind of conversational devotion, um, conversational dialogic back and forth in which the woman might pose a question and Christ mm -hmm. might answer and then they go back and forth about that. That happens more and more as we get into the 15th and the 16th centuries. Yeah, because yeah. that might also legitimize, you know, the discussion and the vision as well, right? right? It's borrowing the... You know, the dialogic yes. model, yes, yeah. absolutely. And that would actually go back to um, to Marguerite Poret, right, whose entire um, Mirror of Simple Souls is a, is a dialogue. Yeah. Well, thank you all for these wonderful questions, and um, please join me in thanking Barbara for a really good presentation. <laughs>